This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm your host for this week, Pratusha Yalamanchi. I'm a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Medical School and the MBA program in healthcare management at the Wharton School. The Business of Healthcare is live every Tuesday at noon Eastern right here on Sirius XM 111. If you have a question or a comment during today's show, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our phone lines are open and we'd love to hear from you. So today we're going to talk about a huge, exciting shift happening in healthcare right now, the rise of consumerism. So now healthcare is often traditionally viewed as taking care of people who are sick. But today we're increasingly seeing consumer-driven health a consumer-driven health market where consumers take control of their health and wellness decisions before they even become patients or while they're patients in the first place. With fitness trackers and healthy food trends, new technologies are empowering us to actively manage our own health. So today we'll talk about the shift to consumerism in healthcare, how it happened, who the big players are, and what consumer-centric healthcare really will look like in the next few years. So joining me from New York is Helen Lease. Helen is a partner in Oliver Wyman's Health and Life Sciences practice and co-head of the New York office, where she leads their Consumer Health Innovation Network and works with clients on the shift to consumer-centric business models. Helen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So first, can you tell us, our listeners, a little bit about yourself? What got you interested in healthcare innovation? Ah, so it was frankly, a mix of personal experiences with the healthcare system that were poor. I had been a partner at Oliver Wyman for a while at that point. I worked in our consumer practice, so most of my clients were leading consumer goods companies. And I have um, what the industry would call frail elder parents. So my parents were in their mid-80s, and they have a couple of chronic conditions they're managing. And then I had uh, twins who were born premature and spent a couple weeks in the NICU. And the disconnect between what was happening in the NICU with what was showing up on the bill from Aetna um, was one piece of it. The kind of, with my parents, the siloed nature of the healthcare system where there's a cardiologist and a nephrologist, for example. And yes, they talk to each other, but each one is trying to optimize an organ rather than a person. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It caused me to scratch my head and say, I think this is an industry where I can make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. It's oftentimes that the burden of navigating the healthcare system is on the caregiver. And it sounds like you saw that from your kids and from your parents. Yeah. Great. So uh, you have written a piece with uh, your colleague, Fritz Heese. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. On, yep. on consumer-driven healthcare. Um, what inspired you to write this? So I have, um, we wrote that piece and I've probably written a couple of dozen others. So when I came into the healthcare practice about almost 10 years ago, the logic for me to move into healthcare was to bring the consumer-centric thinking into healthcare, right? We saw how the Affordable Care Act was taking shape. We saw how the fundamentals in the marketplace were deteriorating. And when I say that, I mean, um, if you look at healthcare costs per capita, And if you look at outcomes, whether it's incidence of disease or mortality, and you compare us to other developed countries, we spend more and our outcomes are no better. And the experience, I think, you can talk to anyone who's had to navigate the healthcare system on an unchosen journey is, you know, pretty lousy, frankly. It's disconnected. You don't know what to do next. It doesn't, it's not clear who's kind of championing for you and on your side versus, you know, who's got their own agenda and you're trying to kind of weigh the advice of many different experts in some situations to figure out what you should do. So we felt strongly that because of that, the marketplace needed to shift, but also we saw how employers were increasingly shifting the cost burden to their employees. So over the last 10 years, if you look at high deductible health plans, um, we're now at a point where the average consumer in an average year is paying for all their health care costs, right? I'm not talking about the sickest of the sick, but if you look at the averages, the consumers are spending that money out of pocket because the first, you know, a couple thousand dollars, in some cases five, six, seven thousand dollars is, is out of pocket before the health insurance kicks in for you. And as a result of that, consumers are making different choices 
for themselves than the employers previously made for them because they're spending their own money now. And we see that come out in uh, sometimes care avoidance. People will delay going to the doctor when something's wrong and kind of wait it out and see what happens. We're seeing that in people choosing not to fill prescriptions when they find out how expensive they are or delaying the refill, um, which can have you know pretty deleterious effects if it's a high blood pressure medication that you're deciding to space out. But on other things, consumers are kind of saying, wait a minute, maybe I don't need the third EpiPen for grandma's house and I should just kind of make do with one or two for my kid. Absolutely. Yeah. So with high deductible plans, it sounds like you're saying that consumers are becoming more sensitive to price and quality since they are the ones who are paying for their own care. Yes, exactly. And can you tell us, tell us, Helen, a little bit about why we're seeing this now? I mean, costs of being sick have been escalating for some time now, and we've been seeing wearable technology on the war, like new technology such as wearables on the market for Sometime, why is now the age of consumer-driven healthcare? It goes back to that data point I mentioned about the average American in an average year is paying for all of their healthcare costs. Sure. Right? So deductibles are so high now that I mean, I'll, I'll take my family. I think our deductible is something like six thousand dollars for a family of four. So we make very different choices. We ask different questions about quality and outcomes. We ask about you know price transparency. Healthcare is a very unique industry in that there really isn't a menu with pricing on it. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of have to dig to figure out, well, what's that going to cost? And if I did the procedure slightly differently or in a different order, what would that mean in terms of the cost implications? So I think we're at a point now where consumers are realizing this and healthcare is competing with a lot of other um, items in a consumer's household budget. And frankly, you know, we've got consumers, if their household income is something like $70,000 a year, it's a lot tougher for them to swallow a $5,000 deductible. So they're going to think very differently about how they're spending and what they're spending on and make very careful, informed choices to the extent they can. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading that WebMD gets 180 million unique visitors each month on its website. And to speak to what you're saying about price transparency, it's very difficult to have data on comparing prices among providers and even when you sign up for plans knowing what you might be and what you might end up paying for are there is there data out there to inform consumers as they try and make these kinds of healthcare choices there is you almost have to cobble together three or four different types of transparency tools that are available today um, there's vitals.com, which will give you a sense of the doctor's quality and their bedside manner, and it's almost kind of Yelp-style reviews. There's clearhealthcost.com, which is a nonprofit started by um, a journalist, actually, who is, you know, investigating and researching what are the differences in prices in a different market, and sometimes she'll find kind of $1,000 or more difference in oh, a procedure wow. depending on who you go to in that market. I think the other thing that's really tricky about healthcare from a consumer perspective is these transparency tools or a cost estimator that your insurer may offer you presumes that you know what to do, right? It presumes that you know you need to look up an MRI for the shoulder, for example. Right. And oftentimes what consumers are thinking about and looking for is kind of the crystal ball, right? So let's, you know, we can take my family again. I have a family of four. I have two children who are active in sports, Right. I'm sure there's a statistician or an actuary somewhere who could calculate for me the probability that we're going to have a child be injured in the next few years and end up with either an ER visit or an MRI or x-ray, et cetera, right? So what's the probability? What's the expected value based sure. on how much that journey would cost? And then how should I think about planning and saving for health care spend for my family? But a lot of plans don't offer that kind of bespoke level of personalization yet. I think there are many that we talk to who are, who are trying to do that and are building tools to be able to do that, but they're not there yet. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like a work in progress. When you mentioned Vitals.com, um, I was reading about just millennials and choosing doctors, and I think it was it was a survey that was done and found that like 80% of millennials will check on Yelp for their doctor yep. to see reviews before going. And from my time, like in med school, I would constantly hear providers complain about how their reviews were based on things they couldn't control, like the wait staff or how long it took to get into the room or like how long it took to get an appointment and things that they felt were like out of their control. Um, 
Do you have any thoughts on how to improve or reflect the quality of care accurately for people looking for reviews? I have I have several thoughts, right? So there's the quality of care, which is the outcome, right? right. My mom needed heart surgery several years ago. She didn't want to go with the cardiologist that the hospital recommended because she didn't like his bedside manner, frankly. And I flew down and I met with him and I asked him how many people have died on your table and he said zero. And I said, how many procedures have you done like this? And it was in, you know, 10 or 12,000. And you say, great, I don't care if you're not kind to my mother at her bedside. Like you have the success statistics I'm looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. But for a lot of other um, conditions or procedures that are managing the bedside manner, perhaps matters more than the open heart surgeon, right? Like if you have someone who's managing diabetes, a lot of what they need is they need the clinical expertise of how do I keep my blood sugar in check, but sometimes they need, you know, the social and emotional support around how do you think about navigating situations where you might, you know, be enticed to make food choices that you really don't want to make or you're not in a supportive structure to kind of do the physical activity you need to be doing, right? And it, it takes a, you know, a softer touch, frankly. So I think there's, there's pure quality measures and then there's experience measures. And millennials are looking at both, right? For, for many of them, they're not yet in situations where it's a severe health risk at stake, perhaps, because they're still kind of young enough. They're not encountering that. So the office experience matters more. But I think you'll, you'll see them start to pick apart those indicators and look for who is the best open-heart surgeon or who is the best cancer surgeon if that's the situation they need. But, you know, millennials in general are skewing differently than for example, boomers in terms of their preferences with respect to healthcare. So, you know, if you, we did a survey about a year and a half ago um, asking a couple thousand consumers, you know, how satisfied are you with healthcare today and what are your concerns? And, you know, at first glance, consumers will say, I'm okay with the status quo, it's fine. And then when you start to scratch the surface and say, well, what are you worried about? They're worried about healthcare costs, they're worried about health insurance costs. And they're worried about, you know, things like access and quality of care. And then when you ask millennials, you know, once you receive a diagnosis, what, what kinds of things do you do next or what do you look for? They are looking for what technology is available to make this better, what services are available to make this better, what financial planning and navigation advice do I need to figure out how to save for what I'm going to have to go through. And boomers have not been asking those kinds of questions or looking for that. I think it's partly because they're accustomed to the status quo, and it's partly because they've been down this path before. They kind of know the journey. But they also are not expecting their health care to get better in the future, which is very different than millennials. And we didn't ask about their health status, right? We didn't say, do you anticipate that your health status will deteriorate over the next few years? Right. We just said, what do you think about the quality of care over the next few years? Will it go up or go down? And boomers thought it would go down. Millennials thought it would improve. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. As millennials think about, like, actively managing, I guess, our own health, um, yeah, it definitely resonated what you were saying about looking for technology tools to help Mm -hmm. with managing that. Are there um, certain – so one thing specifically with wearables is I often hear that there will be – lots of additional data now for providers to monitor and to help them make informed decisions with their patients. But the common criticism is that they'll have to monitor their patients' data on their own time and that that, that's not necessarily time that's compensated for. And I think that's changing. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. I think that's kind of an incrementalist to you, right? So if you take kind of, you know, recent history, and let's let's stick with our diabetes patient, right? So sure. they have a 15-minute visit with their doctor four times a year, for example. And in that 15-minute visit, the doctor will collect a bunch of, you know, biometric information, basically, and then have to make a judgment about how do I titrate their doses? Maybe they're on glucophage. Maybe they're on insulin. Is that managing the blood sugar levels or not? And in the world you're talking about, where maybe I have some kind of, you know, a biometric continuous feed that's showing me their blood sugar, you know, over time, they come in for that three-month appointment, and, you know, am I taking the 
the biometrics in the moment? Sure, but then I can glance at a sheet or a chart that shows me how their blood sugar has titrated or has, you know, varied up and down over the last three months, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I think if you think about the artificial intelligence kind of chassis enabling this, I think it actually relieves some of the burden on the physician and unclogs a bit of the bottleneck that you have in an expert model where you just don't have enough of these kinds of docs getting enough data, right? So then they can say, at this point in time, maybe it's because, you know, the patient knew they were coming in, so for the last 10 days they were super, super good on their diet and exercise, et cetera, but maybe over the last two and a half months they weren't as diligent or disciplined and you saw a lot of movement. Well, that kind of information is really powerful for the physician, and if you've got the right, like I said, chassis or infrastructure in place, then it shouldn't be another burden on the physician. It's like I'm still looking at a sheet of paper that tells me or looking at a screen that tells me what it's been like over the last few months. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than getting a snapshot view of a single appointment, you're being able to see an interval history that's super useful. For those just mm-hmm. joining in, you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Patricia Almanchi. I'm joined by Helen Leese, a partner for the consulting firm Oliver Wyman. Feel free to join our conversation at one eight four four Wharton. So, Helen, how we touched on this a little bit based on reactions that doctors have had to all of this new technology. But in your opinion, how do you feel like traditional healthcare providers are reacting to this consumer-driven health marketplace? It's hard to say writ large about kind of all traditional healthcare providers. I think we're starting to see more movement around fee for value. And we're seeing more providers put some of their book at risk in not just upside but also downside risk arrangements. Um, but if you look at kind of the individual physician who's trying to manage a panel of 2,000 patients and making sure they're doing the right things, to some extent their hands are tied by the systems and infrastructure they have available, right? So my children's former pediatrician, you have to call between 8 and 5 for an appointment, And if you don't get a live person, you get a voicemail that says, please call back later between 8 and 5. That does not work very well with my life, right? Um, And then if I need to do something in terms of, you know, for summer camp, you have to fill out all these medical forms and the doctor has to sign off on things, they're still asking for faxes of summer camp forms. Oh, my gosh. So I kind of said, this does not work with our <laughs> lifestyle, and I love the pediatrician. She's great. Her staff is great. Her colleagues are great. But, you know, that does not work. Um, the, other, the other piece is I can't get in to see them except for the hours between 8 and 5. My kids are in school from 8 to 4, and then I'm at work. So, you know, I asked around, and it goes back to the Yelp-style reviews. Friends' recommendations matter a lot, and we found um, a different offering that the pediatricians are available um, for appointments in the office until 7.30 at night, uh, they accept email. They have an online portal that you can kind of go in and see whatever, you, see whatever you need to see. You can email them summer camp forms. They'll email them back a PDF. I mean, so, so the ones who are not even in terms of how they're delivering care, but just making it more convenient and accessible for the consumer, I think those physicians, one, see the writing on the wall. Right, so they are they are kind of seeing their their much bigger panels, their panel their biz, their physicians are busier, but two, they're also getting better information from consumers and patients about what what's important to you and what are your priorities. Right, it's like I actually don't care if your office is in a fancy midtown Manhattan building. I care that it's open until seven thirty and I can get in and see someone. Right, so sure. they're investing differently and they're making different trade offs, understanding what their patients have asked for. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like your new pediatrician is definitely focused on a patient-centered approach and kind of meeting patients where it's most convenient for them as opposed to the reverse. Yeah, yeah for the I you mentioned that taking providers taking on downside risk. Uh I was wondering if you could talk a, a little more about that the the common sort of uh complaint I've heard about that is that especially for managing chronic conditions when a provider has to take on um, potential compensation risk. People talk about a lot of what determines how well a patient manages their diabetes or another chronic condition is related to social determinants of health, like their own access issues. So if you're if you're dealing with a high-risk population and your downside risk doesn't necessarily stratify for that, maybe your patient doesn't have access to transportation to get to their appointments or get their prescriptions refilled or just 
navigating the healthcare system is a burden for them. And then um, that might be reflected in how you are evaluated in terms of how you care for your patient. So I think what I'm seeing some providers do in those circumstances is make sure they model in costs they would incur to fill those gaps for patients, right? So whether it's, you know, social services or uh, behavioral counseling, that kind of stuff, that they recognize that that population may present different risks and therefore they need to model in costs to support them so that they're not assuming downside risk that they can't control. Nobody wants to take on a risk that they don't control the levers, right? Yeah, so absolutely. We're starting to see more providers kind of expand the spectrum of things that they'll touch, right? And to me, it harkens back to um, it's not exactly the same model, but it's analogous as Caremore, which was a sure. Medicare delivery provider in Southern California. And you would see them do things like, you know, they would give wireless scales to their patients. So if a woman who is suffering from congestive heart failure gets on her scale in the morning, her weight is up three pounds, which we know is a symptom of, you know, there's something going on with your heart and there's fluid building up, it would automatically notify a nurse call center. And the nurse would call her and say, we need you to come in. And she would say, hypothetically, I can't come in. I don't drive my daughters at work. And the nurse would say, we'll send a car for you, Right. So Caremore recognized kind of the support infrastructure that was needed to best serve those patients. You know, when there was a heat wave in Southern California, they spent 400 bucks per person to make sure everyone had an in-window air conditioning unit, right? Because, again, for the kinds of patients you're dealing with, like very high temperatures could cause real problems for them, and you end up with a $40,000 ER visit instead. So in that same kind of pattern, we're starting to see providers who are in entering these downside risk arrangements say, what are the parameters that we need to control for and what is it going to cost us to do that? And does it, does it make it worth it? And in often cases, we're finding that it does. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Caremore is such a good example of that. All of those things that you mentioned, like uh, providing a taxi cab, like providing a transportation for patients and things mm -hmm. like air conditioning and a scale, like all of those things sound like they could be expensive to a health system. But like you said, it, Caremore was able to show that they ended up actually saving a lot of money by preventing that ER visit or that um, inpatient admission later. That's right. That's right. I think their medical loss ratio was around 68% when many others who were serving that population were in the high 80s and 90s. Great. Um, and then in terms of other sort of healthcare players reacting to consumers driving the healthcare mar market, um, how do you think payers are thinking through consumers caring more about price and quality? So payers have been thinking about this for a while, right? And part of it is they had to get ahead of this when um, the public exchanges started, right? So those who decided to serve the ACA marketplace had to figure out how do I run a direct-to-consumer individual business, right? So we saw many doing that in the kind of early 2010s. And then we also saw many deciding to exit because they didn't think the economics and financials supported their presence in the business. But they've leveraged a lot of those learnings for how do I reach a consumer specifically in a value prop that will resonate with them. And they've applied that into their commercial books where they may be calling on the employer, but they recognize that the employee is making a decision, often on a private exchange environment, where they have to compare this product, this plan, what are the other pieces that I can wrap into the benefit stack to make it compelling. So I've actually seen a lot of movement on that. I've also seen really interesting partnerships developing across and outside of healthcare, where a healthcare company will say, we need to get closer to the consumer, we need to identify new sources of economic value, and while we have, you know, this piece and this piece, we may not have this piece, but there's someone over there who doesn't understand healthcare, but they have that other piece we're looking for. So we're starting to see more conversations across industry sectors um, to kind of prompt the kind of innovation, right? So there was an announcement last month, Independence Blue Cross and Comcast are creating a consumer health technology venture together. So I think that's one to watch. And then we're seeing, you know, incumbents from other industries, retail, technology, others, kind of eyeing the value rotating in healthcare, $3 trillion in spend, and saying, huh, I wonder if there's a piece of that that I can better serve than the incumbents are today. Yeah, absolutely. And like Independence Blue Cross, so another announcement that I've heard you talk about was in January, the announcement from Amazon, mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Um, 
Do you think that these kinds of outside players are placing pressure on traditional healthcare providers to think more seriously about consumers? I don't know that I would characterize it just that way. I wouldn't want to say that it's placing pressure, but I think it is serving as a reminder that there's a lot of value in this industry. And if the incumbents aren't serving it appropriately, there are others who will try to. Sure. So it's, I would call it more of an accelerant, if that makes sense. So it's, um, I think the Amazon Chase Berkshire Hathaway one is very interesting because you've got companies who are in B2C businesses today who sit on a lot of data about consumers who, you know, have designed very compelling consumer experiences. I mean, if you think about Amazon, you know, for everything from one click to prime, they've nailed it for the consumer. And even if you think about Berkshire Hathaway, one of their portfolio companies is Geico, right? Geico took an industry and a product that was not interesting or engaging or emotional for a consumer, right? And they made it, like, funny and interesting, and people talk about the gecko, and it's, like, it's a whole brand out of car insurance, which people didn't really think was possible. Um, So I think they have a lot of capabilities that are interesting that are causing health insurers and healthcare providers to say, how should I think about doing business differently in order to kind of shore up the capabilities that consumers might perceive I don't have relative to players like those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've read like differing statistics, but effectively um, something around 40 to 50 percent of determinants of your own health status are based on individual behavior patterns. Mm -hmm. And for something like Amazon, like I can so far what I've read seems to suggest that Amazon, J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway are kind of working together to um, benefit their own employees uh, and create something that is uh, create a consumer centric health plan that's accessible to their own employees. But I could only imagine like Amazon knowing that you have high blood pressure and then suggesting foods that are on a dash diet or low salt. Um, I think there could be so many opportunities there. Yeah. We wrote about this on the Oliver Wyman health blog earlier this year, right? So if you, if you just take Amazon alone, and then we can talk about Chase and Berkshire Hathaway, and it kind of, you know, it's exponential. Um, 100 million prime households. Oh, wow. Um, 50 or 100 million. I forget the latest statistic. Um, Alexa, the growth of, in the home of Alexa has been pretty significant over the last three years. The last time I checked the statistic, it was, I think, 15 million units sold. Um, and Alexa could become the new front door to care, right? Alexa is always on. Right. Alexa, my kid fell off the trampoline. What are my options? What should I do? Alexa, set a reminder for me to take my blood pressure medication every morning. Alexa, I haven't checked my blood sugar. What was the last reading? Right. So there is a real opportunity. If you look at some of the bets that Amazon has already placed, like well over a year ago, they announced they were working with Merck um, in a pilot for Alexa to handle care management for diabetes patients. Right. They have the 1492 leak that came out last summer that sounds like a health information, health sure. technology leak. They've collected licenses in seven or 13 states now to deliver drugs directly to your home. Right. They, they now have the product called Amazon Key, which is a remote door unlocking and security camera app. So I can have packages delivered to inside my front door. And we heard one of the main sources of reluctance for consumers to have uh, prescriptions delivered to their home was they were afraid it would be stolen off the front step. So now Amazon has taken that issue and removed it, right? So you could you could very much picture Amazon at the, kind of the center of a whole host of data and information about how am I managing my health condition? Am I adhering and complying to the, with the care plan? Am I taking my meds as prescribed? Um, that's not accessible to the care delivery system today in that same way. Right, absolutely. That's incredibly exciting to hear how Amazon can help us actively manage our own health. So we need to take a short break, but please stay with us. We are going to continue our conversation on opportunities in consumer health care with Helen Lease of Oliver Wyman when we get back. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Welcome back. This is the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Patricia Alamanchi, a recent grad of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and the Wharton School. Joining me now is Helen Lease, a partner at Oliver Wyman. We're talking about consumer health innovation and 
consumers becoming a bigger part of their own care experience. So Helen, we were just talking about Amazon and in your comments, you mentioned 1492, which I think last year was a leak um, in July about Amazon's uh, secret health lab that was working on hardware and software to help um, to be a part of healthcare. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what that was and what we might expect from their team? So I don't know much about it um, other than I don't, you know, <clears throat> I think the, the word leak is an interesting word because my my suspicion is that nothing gets out unless Jeff Bezos wants it to get out, just as <laughs> sure. you look at how he's run his company over the last couple of decades. Um, but what I saw was it was very much a skunk works health technology play. I'm sure there's a strong data artificial intelligence piece. There are so many different directions that they can go in, just thinking about the existing capabilities they have. I mean, if we think about managing chronic decisions, this, bleh, managing chronic con- diseases and conditions, the heart of it is often behavior modifications and behavior change. Absolutely. And we know that experience design plays a real role in that, right? So if you think about other industries, um, take video consumption, right, 10 or 15 years ago, you may have gone to Blockbuster on a Friday night and wandered around the store, maybe with your significant other or your parents or your kids and probably argued for 45 minutes over this one, no, this one, and then you probably walked home with three or four. And then maybe you watched two, and then five days later you got hit with late fees because you hadn't returned everything. Right. Right? So Netflix redesigned that experience, right? So now you or it started with CDs that you would order and people were kind of or DVDs rather people were skeptical that you would actually want to deal with the mail but if you've got your you know list and you're managing your list it's almost a passive thing where it shows up in the mail for you and then you watch it and then you drop it back off in the mail they got rid of the late fees which were the real Achilles heel of the blockbuster model and frankly blockbuster's problem was the economic value was rooted in penalizing their in the customers late fees, right right which is not a great way to think about building a profitable business over time. And then Netflix disrupted themselves again and said, actually, we think streaming is really the way of the future and people are going to want to just have immediate consumption. Um, So they took that five-day experience that ended with a late fee down to an instant experience. And as a result, they changed behaviors. People don't physically go out to a blockbuster anymore and walk up and down the aisles. They still have the same arguments, but now the argument is on their couch. So if you think about what Amazon is doing, um, if you think about when you go on to the app and you're looking for something, you will look for the customer reviews. It will tell you customers like you, customers who've bought this and that tend to buy this. And that drives your choices. And then they see what recommendations you follow and which ones you ignore. And then that is, again, the algorithm is turning the crank again and learning more and more about you. And when you think about how you could apply that kind of a capability in healthcare, it becomes really powerful and interesting because you can have the right nudge for the right consumer at just the right point in time. Yeah, there's so many opportunities in choice architecture there. Uh, Helen, do you think there are any concerns around data privacy and HIPAA compliance with all of these new entrants? So the data privacy concern I get asked about a lot, right? And we've certainly seen a number of data breaches, and, you know, there were several high-profile ones in healthcare in the last couple of years. We know consumers have their eye on it, but we also know that we've already given Amazon everything about us, right? Right. They know every single person I've ever delivered a package to. I can go back, and you can do the same. You can go into the app, and you can see your first purchase ever, So I know what I bought in 1995, which is interesting because I still have that book. Um, So with with certain brands, we have given permission for them to have information about everything in our lives, right? By letting Alexa in our home, right? Alexa knows when I turn off the lights and turn on the lights. And Alexa knows what music I like to listen to. Alexa can probably tell when I'm not home based on what music my kids are listening to. So I think... The right brands have built trust with us that we will allow them more and more of that permission. And I think Amazon is one of those brands that we're willing to do that. I think the trick is the first time it's compromised, my guess would be it's there's no going back. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's trust is so important to a healthcare relationship. I was that reminds me. I was just at my college reunion and I was talking to. Um, some friends, and they were saying that their insurance providers were recommending doctors to them. Mm-hmm. And they were, they actually made the statement that they'd rather have Amazon or Yelp recommend a doctor than their insurance provider. Interesting. 
And I, what do you think that there are things that like traditional healthcare payers or pharma can do to like increase trust? It seems like some of these brands that we do trust so much have, like you said, an, a clear advantage when it comes to sharing our health data. I do. And I think I would, I would want to see the insurer's recommendations first because they're sitting on such an enormous amount of claims data that tell them kind of the frequency that this provider is performing this procedure and the outcomes they're getting and the costs, right? So I would want to see that. I think to build the trust, it all starts from authentic, genuine, transparent interaction. Sure. And I think health plans are in the middle of a migration away from a B2B business into a B to B to C or even B to C business. And the trust and transparency was previously at the employer level. And now it needs to go down another level to the consumers so that when you call the call center, if you have a problem, we'll talk about the fact that I don't even want to call the call center in a second. But right. when you call the call center, you don't feel like someone's reading you a script. You want to feel like they're treating you like a human. They're seeing you as an individual and they are genuine and authentic and wanting to help you. And I'm not saying insurers aren't that way today. I'm just saying they have not enabled their frontline employees to behave in a way that transmits that kind of, you know, transparency and genuine, authentic interactions. As they start doing more of that, as they kind of change their service models, I think that will build trust where you start to see the insurer as someone who is really your champion and advocate on your behalf in navigating the healthcare system. Because they do. They sit on all the data or most of the data, in, in terms of what procedures or what conditions have what um, types of treatments and which ones are more efficacious and which ones get better outcomes and what provider is better at this and that. Yep. Yelp's not going to give you that. Yeah. yeah, it definitely doesn't give you that yet. Uh, so we're going to do a quick reset. For those just joining in, you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Pratushi Alamanchi, and I'm joined today by Helen Lease, a partner at Oliver Wyman. We're talking about consumer-driven healthcare. Feel free to join our conversation at one eight four four Wharton. So we've t- spent the hour, Helen, talking about how exciting and how many opportunities there are in the consumer-driven market. Can you give us an idea of how big this market is going to be? Mm. I guess I mean big for who? You mean in terms of revenue dollars or? Sure. Yeah, revenue dollars, um, the kinds of pro- products we so, might be looking at. If you start with $3 trillion, right, some percentage of that is people speculate kind of fraudulent and or wasted, right, like whether it's a repeated test because you're going to different providers in the system. Then when you add on kind of things that are outside the traditional benefit stack today, the things that are highly valued by consumers who are trying to manage their health and wellness, right, the yoga membership, the acupuncture appointments, um, the visits with the therapist, right? All of those kinds of pieces, I think, should be included in this because we've seen that when people are able to access those kinds of services, they report higher well-being. They report, you know, less frequent needing to go to the doctor for this ailment or that ailment. So I think you end up at a pretty large number very quickly, like definitely in the hundreds of Bs, if not a T at the end of the dollar sign. And then I think the the products and services and offerings, like technology is definitely going to play a big part of this, right, just based on where we are in the world. There's a lot of talk about digital health this and digital app that. There are tens of thousands of digital health apps in the app store. We haven't seen the category killer yet, right? We haven't seen the one that knits together what is the job that the consumer needs you to do in a way that the consumer feels like you're doing it on their behalf in a very personalized way, the way Amazon feels to us today, but also addresses the nature of the system today. It's fragmented. It's siloed. The provider's data sits separately from the insurer's data. No one has a whole picture of you yet. So I think those who start to knit together the holistic picture of an individual across all the touch points in the healthcare system they may have is going to have a pretty powerful offering. Like, I don't even have that for myself. I have, like, five different providers in New York City and another couple where I grew up in Virginia Beach, and no one has a full picture of my health. I mean, I kind of have it in my memory. My mom has some of it, but it doesn't sit in one place. And the more we can get to that, I think the better we will be able to get at, like, understanding the patterns and the behaviors and understanding which conditions you're more susceptible to or likely to contract and, therefore, what things you need to be doing differently along the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's 
it's amazing. I learned to the idea that we could potentially have access to our own, all of our own patient data or Mm -hmm. our own health history seems like very difficult to achieve in practice. I learned to use a fax machine in medical school because <laughs> because I'd have to try and track down patient records from a random health system and the fastest way to get them was either to like completely repeat all the tests or to try and get them to fax it to the right machine and the right yep. floor and and then hope that somebody is standing there to receive it because yeah. if you're not. Sometimes they don't actually print anymore. It's stored in memory until you come along and push a button, which is fascinating to me. Absolutely, to access it. And then if people bring CDs with their <laughs> imaging, then you have to upload them. And there's uh, there's so many different levels of technology awareness, even in among providers. So that produces another barrier. Right. And people really just want it all in one app. Yeah, I like the phrase that you use of like knitting together different industry, like different aspects of your care, because an app that could advocate on behalf of you would be so productive. Yep. Yep. Are there? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go. Oh, I was just going to ask you if there, besides like nutrition services or wearables technology, are there other like consumer products out there that? Um, are part of the healthcare sphere that we should know about? So I'm not able to kind of endorse. Oh, sure. (laughs) Sure. Um, I think there's a lot happening in the nutrition space, right, as the nutrition science gets more sophisticated um, for things like, you know, what's the right diet for someone who's undergoing chemotherapy or what's the right diet for someone who started with an underlying cardiac condition, the cardiology drugs then kind of basically kill the kidney. So now they're kind of threading stage three or stage four chronic kidney disease. So they're on a very careful diet. But then as a result of that diet, which is low protein, low potassium, it triggers prediabetes, right? So we're starting to see from a clinical perspective, really interesting developments in nutrition science, which I think is great. Um, And it's also such an interesting point in the nutrition industry for me because I still think for the lay consumer, like hold aside the clinical need for better nutrition, the lay consumer is still trying to figure out, is fat good or bad? Right. Are carbohydrates good or bad? Like what am I supposed to eat? Am I supposed to do Atkins or Whole30 or South? I mean, there's so much confusion and there's so much um, almost cult-like fanaticism around it's got to be this way and only that way that I think... The lay consumer, kind of the average generally healthy person, is just trying to figure out, what am I supposed to be doing? And depending on which specialist you ask, who's coming from a very specific lens of, for a chemotherapy patient, helping them maintain weight, for a diabetes patient, let's keep the blood sugar down, for a kidney patient, let's keep the potassium and protein down, it's a completely different clinical conclusion. So I think that's a very interesting phase to watch over the next five to ten years. Um, and then I think the, the products and services, you see so much that are the biometric remote monitoring that tell me, you know, my heart rate, how much sure. I slept last night, was my sleep disturbed, how many disturbed, how many steps did I take, what's my resting heart rate. It, it's fascinating. I think people are a bit overwhelmed by it because you get to a point where you feel like everything in your life is a data point and you kind of just want a little headspace from that. Absolutely. So so I'm, you know, we're starting to see more and more of the wearables are kind of left in the drawer sometimes for the weekend. Sometimes it becomes not just a weekend, but a week or two or even a month. Um, So I don't think that industry has settled out yet. I think part of it is finding the right offering for a consumer that doesn't feel intrusive, that gives me the information I want about myself, but not feeling like my mom over my shoulder telling me to do more. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even for myself, I just feel like uh, looking at my health apps or my wearables, just the amount of data is certainly overwhelming and I don't know how to take action on it. And sometimes I feel like it promotes uh, the opposite of health promoting behavior. Like I'll see the number of steps I take in a day and I'll be like, oh, that seems sufficient. Whereas I would have planned a gym session into my regimen without it. Yeah. My mother-in-law, that's exactly the reaction she had. So I live in New York City. By definition, I walk everywhere. Absolutely. My, I think it was a Fitbit I had at the time, was regularly hitting 25,000 steps without really trying. And she saw it and she was like, wow, I only get eight or 10,000 a day. 
and in my mind, you know, she's in her early 70s. That's great. That sounds great. So yeah. Kind of defeated. Like, if I'm not doing 25,000, then why am I even bothering? Oh, and no. It, it, it's kind of like you're getting the data, but without some kind of a connection to guidance around how to use the data and how to change your behaviors, it's really hard for folks to plug into it and know what they should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, along those lines, do you have any tips for just consumers or patients out there who are trying to take advantage of all these new apps and things like vitals.com and all of these different resources out there that are there to give them more data and help them navigate the healthcare system, but can be overwhelming? I, I do. I think it is um, easier to start with an application like a pragmatic thing, right? It's very hard to just kind of go out and get smart on 50 different services or offerings if you don't have an acute need for something, right? So you don't want to be in the middle of a crisis, but, you know, the classic example, you know, my son got hit during a game. Okay, let's start looking out there. If he were to have a concussion, what does that look like? What does an MRI cost? What kind of treatments are out there? And I think I actually like to start with the provider's. And we're seeing more providers moving into this consumer-centric space. More of them have patient portals. More of them are putting a lot more information online. They're trying to do remote um, visits or telemedicine visits. So just kind of getting the landscape of in your own neighborhood, what's available, how easy or hard is it to access, and how clear and simple is the information you're getting is is a great place to start, right, truly as a consumer. Like I said, you don't want to do it in the middle of a crisis because stress is high and it's you know, emotional and difficult. Um, but I think starting with that kind of local feel for something that's not acute, but, you know, a minor, what would this look like if we were to do this, is one. Um, the other is the insurers are increasingly putting a lot of information on their websites, but there's nothing necessarily driving a consumer to the website until it's like, I don't understand the explanation of benefits I received in the mail. So, you know, hopefully you know which insurer you have, if you have insurance. Go to their website. What are they saying to consumers? What are their offerings? What kind of engagement tools do they have? And then start to get familiar with those tools so that if you do end up in a crisis, you have a few places you can start. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really useful toolkit for getting started. Uh, We have a call from Kirthika in New Jersey. Kirthika, thanks for your call. You're on the air. Hi, this is a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I'm currently working on a startup in the digital healthcare space. Specifically, we're working on opioid-exposed babies um, and their mothers. Uh, This is neonatal abstinence syndrome and providing a patient-informed care management system along with the therapeutic app. So my question today is, you know, as part of consumer healthcare, there is this huge need for mental health access as well as, um, you know, help. at your fingertips, so to speak. So what's your view on the growth and, in general, just as, uh, the business case and the business model uh, of applying digital therapeutic or mental health apps um, for, um, you know, consumers, directly to consumers? So I think, I think there's growth there for sure, and I think there's a compelling business case as long as it's a hybrid model where it's coupled with some kind of in-person or community support. Right. So I would view the app as, um, I don't want to say a practice extender per se, but it is it is another arrow in the quiver rather than the exclusive arrow in the quiver to help those folks. Sure. Absolutely. Kirthika, thanks for your call on the growth of mental health and therapeutic apps and good luck with your uh, startup. It sounds like it will be very valuable to have. Uh, so we're taking your calls at one eight four four Wharton. Thank you for calling in, uh, Helen. Do you have any? We only have a few minutes left. Do you have anything else that you would like to share? We've had a great discussion of consumers and the role, the increasing role of cons- consumers driven, driven healthcare. The only other thing I'd add, and it's partly to the last question and partly kind of in general, is when I'm working with clients in this industry, there are two things that I strongly encourage they consider, right? Because healthcare is tricky because there's so many, even in the example that we were just discussing, right? The, the patient in that situation is perhaps not the buyer of services, right? Maybe right. it's a family member or caregiver. Maybe it's a government agency if the person's on Medicaid. Like there's no, there's no one single solution there. So I encourage clients to look for the sources of economic value in what they're doing, right? Literally who benefits from a monetary perspective, 
And then what are they willing to pay to access those benefits? And then I also encourage them to look for sources of strategic control. So often getting closer to the consumer in healthcare has been one of those sources of strategic control. So if you have a strong relationship with the consumer, it's hard for others to replicate that. For example, Amazon knows everything about my buying history for the last 20 years, the Prime membership, the one-click. It's very hard for someone else to come in and be my Amazon. Right. Um, so I encourage my healthcare clients to do the same, and I think that can be um, – much trickier because you've got so many different stakeholders in the system, but the consumer is increasingly one of the main sources. Absolutely. Thank you. That's very helpful advice, not only for healthcare providers out there, but also for consumers as we try to navigate the healthcare system. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Helen, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Is there anywhere people can keep track of what you're working on? Um, so a lot of our perspectives I keep on our Oliver Wyman Health blog. I think it's OWHealth.com. Okay, that's <laughs> you know, great. We'll look. We'll if you look. Google Oliver Wyman Health, it'll take you to our blog. That sounds there great. You thank you so much for being on. Okay, thanks very much. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank our producer, Brian Drew, and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for putting on today's show. Uh, this is the last show that I will personally be in hosting as I'm heading off to residency. And it's been such a wonderful experience to have the chance to speak to healthcare leaders out there like Helen on industry trends and where we can see healthcare going forward. This show is going to be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about our show and hosts on SiriusXM's website, SiriusXM.com slash business radio. If you have a question for us or an idea for a segment, you can write to our email address, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. We had a great show today on consumer-driven healthcare and trends there as we start to see a rise in consumers taking control of their health and wellness decisions before they become patients or as they try and navigate the healthcare system as patients. As we see more fitness trackers and healthy food uh, food trends, new technologies are really empowering us to actively manage our own health. So please tune in in the future. You've been listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 